Would you take your Bibles tonight, turn to the book of Jonah in your Bibles tonight, the book of Jonah. What a great night here. I have loved every second of the service. Um, just a blessing. It did my heart well to see uh, Brother Miss Collins. Uh, I think we took them on for support. I don't even know where they're at. They probably, oh, there you are. In the back, like a good pastor. Um, uh, I love that. Uh, what about six months ago, something like that, and heard about their need, and we were talking, I think it was in Lancaster or something like that, and uh, what a blessing they were, and or he was, and I uh, hadn't really spent any time with Shelby, but thanks to, thank the Lord for them and their kids. And, and sometimes people think that folks from California are only worried about California. I tell you, we're just worried about pe- places that need churches. We just have a huge need in California. So we have one church in our state for every 150,000 people. One independent Baptist church. There's a couple other different type of Bible preaching churches maybe, but very few. And and so when I heard about Brother Mike and Shelby going there and kind of the same age Debbie and I were when we left beautiful Amarillo, Texas and uh, going there and revitalizing that ministry, man, my heart was excited and knowing they'd been trained well, what a blessing and exciting to hear about all of that and just excited for you guys and the journey of faith that you're on and that feeling of fatigue that you have. Brother Prater told me it doesn't leave till retirement. So I don't know. And he didn't even retire. He's just repurposed. And so great to have a dear friend preacher here tonight. I learned that's what they call you here, preacher. So that's what you'll be. And so uh, I told them last night, our staff loves you and Miss Katie. Miss Katie's speaking our ladies retreat this year. Uh, Brother Prater's preaching at uh, for us on Sunday. We're going to have a big outreach date. It just didn't work in our calendar. He'll be preaching for us, helping our dealing with our staff. That's what I was going to say. He's a huge encouragement to our church family and such a blessing. And I have to say a couple of things. Before I came here, I prayed, which is good, but I prayed that we'd have a thunderstorm. And I, it happened last night during church and I'm kind of ticked off at the Lord. You ever get an almost answered prayer? And I thought it's praying, it's thunderstorming out there tonight. And I'm stuck in here in service while God's answered my prayer out there. And I, anybody ever else feel like that? Like you're halfway bitter with Jesus, but you know, you're not allowed to be, but if you were allowed to be, you'd be there. Am I the only honest person in this church? Half of y'all are lying right here. We don't get bitter in Kansas. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You got a good basketball team, but I've seen your football team. You better be better at that. I'm not making fun. I'm a San Diego State fan. Don't get mad at me. I've got nothing to say. I've got nothing to root for. But, uh, man, and then we left last night. I just stood in my motel window and opened it up, Pastor. And I watched the rain come down. And I watched lightning. And I listened to thunder for like 30 seconds. And then I was done with it. I closed it back up, thanked the Lord for answered prayer, and watched basketball. So I was good. I uh, was good. By the way, Sid told me tonight, he said, Pastor, you preach as long as you can, but the Mavericks are playing at nine. Don't forget. And so Sid, we'll be done by nine. But uh, Pastor said, you're closing up tonight. So uh, I love it. I love the spirit here. Brother Ellison, what a great man. I, I just wept. Every picture that you saw, I haven't been to those countries per se, but third world is third world. 
And I, as you're talking about the stories and all of that, man, I tell you, I've been there. I've seen that. And uh, we've got a great doctor in our church. I'm going home. We're going to Honduras together. Uh, and um, if you literally, I'm not trying to pressure. This isn't planned. I just feel led of the Lord. The greatest thing I've done for my spiritual life, obviously salvation, church planner, pastor, all that stuff. But I'm telling you, the most life-changing thing I've done is take mission trips. Not mission trips slash vacations, which some people do like, hey, let's go to the Bahamas for 14 days. And like one day they pick up trash on the beach and witness to a crab and they call it good. (laughs) Come back and tell stories. No, I'm serious. When you go and you minister, life changing and mission budget changing and heart giving change. Your church is a great church on giving. I got nothing to say, but praise the Lord for that. But I'm telling you, it'll change. It might not change how much you give, but it'll change why you give. It'll change how you give and the joy that you have in giving. So, and a lot of people from this part of the world go to Mexico and that's awesome and wonderful and don't stop doing that. I love Mexico. Uh, our church says that I'm a, I'm an egg. I'm white on the outside. I'm, ye- uh, I'm white on the outside, yellow on the inside. The only thing that's not Spanish about me is my tongue. And my skin color. I wish I could speak the language, but it's just, I just got, I've got a winter coat on my tongue all the time and it just won't do it. I can't hardly roll my R's. And every time I try, they're like, Oh, pastor, you need to go to speech therapy. And, uh, I was like, thank you for the insult. They're like, we're not insulting you. You really need to go to speech therapy. Um, but it is, it is an absolute joy to go to places looking forward to next year, going to three countries in Africa, going to South America next year, probably going to go to Southeast Asia next year. Matter of fact, I'm going to need a pastor at our church next year. Pastor, are you available? You could come in for all of those trips and, and, uh, man, just, just go, just go. And if you need help paying for it, let me know. I'll help pay for it. I'll pay for it. If I need to, if you're a medical professional, to get you there. I mean that. And uh, we want to see you do that. It'll change your life. Well, book of Jonah, I don't want to be long. So the book of Jonah chapter three tonight. As we come to the book of Jonah, I want to give you just a tad bit of a background. I want to be gracious with our time, understanding that many of you know a lot about this story. Maybe uh, the most, or certainly one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible, well-known accounts. You talk to people all over. They, as a general rule, even people who don't know anything about the Bible will, will talk about the story of Jonah. And I get questions about that. Hey, do you believe in that guy that swallowed that fish? I'm like, I don't believe in any guy that swallowed a fish, but I believe in a fish that swallowed a guy. Oh yeah, tell me about that. And it's just well known. It's a well known story. According to 2 Kings chapter 14, verse number 25, uh, Jonah was, and and not talked about very much, but Jonah was a uh, prophet to the northern tribes of Israel, to the nation of Israel after the division, and Judah in the south, and Israel in the north. And he was a contemporary of Amos. He really served as the prophet of that region just prior to Amos. He was uh, from Gath-Hefer near Nazareth where Christ was raised, if you will. Second Kings 14.25 tells us about that. And as a prophet to the northern tribes, he uh, served in a very interesting time. Uh, the nation of Israel at that time did very well financially. 
when Jonah was the prophet. They were very, very prosperous because their main enemies at that time were the Assyrians and the Syrians, not the same nation, different nation, uh, different nations, I should say. And those two nations were on the demise for a period of time. And because of that, the northern tribes did well financially. Their crops did well in an agrarian culture. Their cattle and their herds and their flocks all did well. And so it was a very, very prosperous time. Uh, militarily, they expanded their borders at that time back to where David was, or David had set the borders and Solomon had sent the borders. I mean, it was a, it was, listen to me, it was a financially awesome time to be in Israel. Just financially awesome. But spiritually, it was horrible. I say that to say this. Sometimes in American Christianity, we feel like and we think when we have financial blessing that that is synonymous with spiritual blessing. And we need to be very careful that we understand that they are not the same thing. Just because your 401k is doing well or you got a pay raise doesn't mean that everything between you and Jesus is right. They were financially prosperous, but spiritually it was a time of grave poverty. There were injustices. There were, they were idolatrous. They became very ritualistic. And God sent a prophet to that part of the world, to, to Israel, named Jonah, to preach, thus saith the Lord, to the people of Israel. And so Jonah was a very, very well-known preacher in Israel. I mean, he's declaring the truth of the word of God. He's preaching to the nation of Israel. He, he, he's, he's, he's letting it fly, if you will, as they say down south. And he's just going for it. That's what he's doing. But that's not what he's known for. What's he known for? He's known for the reality that in the middle of his ministry to Israel, God calls on him and tells him to go to the city of Nineveh and preach a message of repentance and and restoration to God, which he refuses to do. So you got this prophet preaching repentance and faith toward God to the people of Israel. God says, you've done well there, but now I want you to go to Nineveh, the the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and I want you to preach there. And Jonah says, no way, I'm not doing that. It's a really captivating story. If you wonder why Jonah didn't want to go, many of you would obviously know that reason. Jonah didn't want to go because he was extremely prejudiced against the Assyrians. Let me say this. The prejudice that Jonah had towards the Assyrians is far greater. And I think all prejudice is wrong. We're all created in the image of God. I'm just preaching through the book of Romans in our church. And I just did chapter five, verses 12 to 14, and talking about that we're all in Adam and all of us are from Adam and we're all the same in Adam. And there's no distinction. There's neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, Scythian, barbarian, that we are all one. And to dislike another person who is in the corporate body of Adam. I don't have time to preach it, but let me just say, in God, eyes were in the corporate body of Adam and to dislike somebody because of the color of their skin, because of the food that they eat, the accent that they have, or the region of the world that they live in is entirely in opposition to the word of God. Entirely in opposition. But Jonah, if anybody had just cause to hate people, it might've been Jonah. 
Why? The Assyrians were a horrible people. Now, Nineveh, they tell us that Nineveh was probably the largest city in the ancient world. Chapter 3 in our text, jump in there with me if you would. And the word of the Lord came into Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went into Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey. So here's this great city. God calls it great time. And again, and historians tell us, may have been the largest city in the ancient world. We, we are not sure how many people live there. There's a big debate on that. Some say well over a million. Some some say a couple hundred thousand. We are not sure. But what we do know is that God refers to it through his word as a great city, a, a well, if you will, inhabited place was Nineveh. And God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, I'm not going. Why, Jonah, aren't you not going? Because these are evil, vile people. The people of Assyria were the most violent people in the ancient world. I won't take time to go into all their violence. There's children in here. But let me just tell you, if you've ever watched an ISIS video, if you've ever seen people, we've got a lot of guys in our church that have served in Afghanistan and in Iraq. We've got a a brother that just came back with SEAL Team 3 from Yemen. He's not on the SEAL team. He's their logistics specialist and and just came back from there. They are a violent, violent group. They were, ISIS is a violent, violent group of people. And you can trace that all the way back to the Assyrian people. I mean, when they would go into towns, they would, they would level the whole town. They, they wouldn't even ask you to surrender. When the Assyrians came, if you didn't defeat them, everyone was dying and everyone was going to die a very, very painful death. I mean, it was bad. Jonah had, humanly speaking, a little bit of justification to dislike these folks. It wasn't like he was talking about the Sunday school class at the neighboring church. He's talking about some evil folks. Matter of fact, 150 years, it's almost like Jonah was a prophet. I think he was. It's almost like he understood what was coming. And 150 years after the repentance of Nineveh that we all know about that we're working towards, the people of Assyria turn their back on the revival that they had, and they actually go at that point down to Israel, and they destroy Israel, and they kill tens of thousands of people in a very, very, very violent way. I mean, it was a horrific event. So God tells Jonah, go. Jonah says, I'm not going. You know, Nineveh is north and a little bit east of where Jonah was. Jonah says, I'm getting in a ship and I'm going to Tarshish, which is as far away in the known world at the time that he could possibly go. He said, God, you called me to go to Nineveh. I'm going to Tarshish. And think of how bad the rebellion is for this dude. When you rebel against God, the levels of rebellion you'll go to and feel comfortable going to will shock you at the end when you turn around and see it. You say, what do you mean? Well, in chapter one, the Bible tells us, I mean, the Bible doesn't mix a lot of words in here. Jonah is writing this story. I believe there's some debate on who wrote it. I think Jonah wrote Jonah. It's in the name. But whatever, um, Jonah uh, is called of God to go to Nineveh in chapter 1, tells God, I'm not going to Nineveh, and he hires himself, or he gets on his ship, it's a cargo ship going down to Tarshish, and there's this great storm that comes up, and Jonah is down in the bottom of the ship asleep. 
Now, I know we're in Kansas, and they refer to these states, Kansas, Nebraska, Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, where I live, we refer to you, not in a pejorative sense, but really in a way that many of our young people want to move to these states because you have jobs and affordable housing. Um, and, and a little bit more sane politics every once in a while, though, um, we just want to say your governor and our governor are related. Um, so don't come up to me. And I appreciate nobody coming up and complaining to me. I had one lady in a meeting one time, Pastor. She came up to me. And I was at a basketball game watching a kid play, a pastor's kid play. And she came up to me afterwards. And she goes, I hear you're from California. I said, yes, ma'am, I'm from California. She said, I don't like California. I said, well, nice to meet you. My name's Chris. <laughs> she said this. She goes, do you know Nancy Pelosi? Uh, no, ma'am, I'm in San Diego. She lives in Washington, D.C. and has a very wealthy house up in the Bay Area. Kelby, Tiffany might know her. They're closer, but I, I never met her. She goes, well, and I'll never forget this. She looked right at me. She goes, if you ever meet her, you do me one favor. Okay, I'll think about it. Probably not going to journal this one. Obviously, I have. Um, <laughs> Okay, what is it? You tell her I hate her. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to be first on my list. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. But I appreciate nobody coming and doing that. Now, don't do that now just to prove a point. But um, Jonah, you know, in these square states, I don't know how many people have ever been in the ocean or ocean liners or maybe in difficult seas. I remember one night, John Vaught and I, you guys know John Vaught, obviously he worked here. John and I, there was a guy in our church that said, hey, you guys want to go giant squid fishing? I didn't know there were giant squid. Yeah, Pastor, they're about 55 pounds. Oh, I am all in. He said, okay, we've got a school of them two miles off the coast of Point Loma. We'll go out of H&M Landing and it'll be awesome. Okay, what do I need? I've never caught giant squid before. I'll get you the lure, which is this long fluorescent thing with little hooks on it. And they just hold on to it. You never hook them. They just hold on to it. You gaff them, you pull them in. So we're out there the night after a storm in 16 foot seas. 16 foot seas. I want to tell you something. You're in 16-foot seas. You're not going to sleep. What are you doing? I caught one fish and I spent the rest of the time, John and I, in fellowship with Jesus over the boat, feeding the rest of the fish all night long. How in the world Jonah was in the bottom of the boat and he was asleep, to me, is just abject rebellion to what God says. And the shipmaster comes down. He says, dude, we're about to die. What are you doing? And I think Jonah's down there going, let's go ahead and die. I'm ready. They get up to the top. What are we going to do? You know the story. Let's cast Lot. They give the Lot. The Lot falls on Jonah. Jonah, what are we going to do with you? I mean, these are pagan sailors. And I work with sailors every day of my life. Let me tell you, they're not always the most wholesome of folks. And these pagan sailors are like, Jonah, what are we going to do? He's like, you got to throw me over the side of the boat. And they're like, we don't want to throw you over the side of the boat. That's not good. No, you've done everything else. Throw me over the side of the boat. No, we can't throw you over the side of the boat. Throw me over the side of the boat. Finally, they throw Jonah over the side of the boat. I think Jonah was so committed to not sharing the gospel in Nineveh that he was ready to die. 
Think about that kind of resistance to what God has called you to do. You say, why do you say he was ready to die? Maybe he was going to swim to Nineveh. No, he wasn't. God prepared a great fish. I remember in Bible college, I made some comments about Bible college last night that were intended to be humorous. I hope that they were received that way. If you took it as truth, that's between you and the Lord. Get it right. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But when I was in Bible college, I remember people debating, was it a whale or a great fish? I don't know if it was a whale or a great fish, but I know it was this big thing in the water that came and swallowed him and kept him for three days. And while he's in that big sea thing, he repents and says, God, if you'll let me out, I'll go to Nineveh and preach. And that's what God does. God's take the fish. Now, historians tell us he probably spit him up about, Tar- about the place of Tarshish. And then Jonah had to walk the 200 miles from Tarshish to Nineveh. Nineveh's inland. You don't, you don't sail to Nineveh. He had to walk 200 miles, which the average man could walk on a good day, 25 miles a day. So somewhere between 18 and 20 days to 25 days that Jonah had to walk to Nineveh. And he gets to Nineveh. And I want you to notice something as he comes to Nineveh in verse number uh, in our text, verse number four, Jonah entered into a city, a day's journey. Nineveh was three days journey. Nineveh was about 75 miles wide. Jonah gets one third of the way into the city of Nineveh and he, and he, and he starts passing out flyers, inviting people to a meeting, rents a hall, asks the people to come in, starts meeting with city council folks, doing everything he can to gather a meeting. And people finally come on Sunday morning. They sing three stanzas of victory in Jesus, two stanzas of I will follow Jesus. And then one of the songs we sing tonight that I care. Oh, mighty to save. And then Jonah gets up and he preaches a message. They have an invitation and about four people get saved. No. Jonah was a ticked off prophet. He wasn't happy to be there. He was unhappy with the calling of God on his life. He wanted to be back in Israel preaching. Why is he preaching to these dumb Ninevites? These vile, evil people. So here's his entire message. Ready? Verse number four. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That is not a message that builds a crowd. Matter of fact, if tomorrow you go into your place of business and say to everyone in there, yet 40 days... And this place will be overthrown. Go to school tomorrow, liberal high school, or Fellowship Baptist Academy. Yet 40 days, and this science lab will be overthrown. It won't be long before people visit you. They put you in a special jacket with buckles behind your back. They put you in a padded room. They have special people come and talk to you to try to figure out what in the world is going on. They literally will think you're crazy. That was Jonah's message. You say, Chris, he had to say more than that. If he did, it's not recorded in the scripture. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying it wasn't recorded. Like, like, dude, yet 40 days. You say, how do you think it went? I think it went like this. This is Nineveh. Sorry, guys, on the video. They complained last night. I told them they'd have less to complain about tonight. I won't walk as much. He walks one third of the way in, saying nothing. By the way, dude hasn't bought new clothes. There was not a Walmart between where he got off the ship of the fish or whale, fish whale, and walking to Nineveh. 
His clothes were probably really, really ragged. We're just assuming some things based on science there, that the acids in the belly of the whatever it was probably had eaten his clothes away. And he's walking in there somewhat haggard looking, and he walks in one third of the way, and here's his message, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What do you mean? I am not an expositor. I'm just telling you what God said. 40 days you'll be overthrown. 40 days you'll be overthrown. 40 days you'll be overthrown. I don't know how many times he said it. In my mind, he said it about 10 times and waited for God to say done. He's not a Baptist. So the people of Nineveh hear this message, verse number five, and believed God. After all the work I do to put together a message, this dude preaches eight words and people believe him and he doesn't even want to be there. There's like five pastors in the room. We, we preach a lung out and our heart breaks through the sermon and people are like, oh, well, maybe I'll even think about that. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown and the people believe God. Let me just stop and say something. You can't underestimate the power of the preached word of God. And you can't underestimate when God's going to do something, how foolish a person he's going to use to prove the fact that he is mighty. He does not need us. He uses those, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, who are weakest among us to prove to those who are strongest among us who is the ultimate authority of all. So Jonah comes in with this really, really crummy message and says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people are falling all over themselves to get to the altar. Keep reading. And proclaimed a fast. <laughs> I preached on fasting, and as I walked out the door, people were like, yeah, we ain't doing that. <laughs> and they put on sackcloth. I, that, let me just tell you, that was abnormal for the Assyrians. That was an Israel thing to do. That was a very, very humbling thing for the Assyrian people to do. They put on sackcloth. And he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth. I'm sorry, uh, verse number five. From the greatest of them, even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, uh, Jonah. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. People run up to the king. Hey, king, there's this half-dressed Jew down there. And he's saying in 40 days, we're done for. What does the king do? Verse number six. He arose from his throne and he laid his robe off of him or from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes, sackcloth like a burlap. And it caused it to be proclaimed or a law and published through Nineveh by decree of the king who has ultimate authority. It had heretofore been considered deity. Published a decree of the king and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. Now, I'm not a cow guy. And I'm not a sheep guy or a camel guy. I will eat them, but I know nothing about them. You guys are kind of cattle people. But I'll tell you, as this city kid drives through farmland and sees cows and sheep. I don't really see camels here in the U.S. very often. 
But cows and sheep, I always see them doing something. Eating. I always see them eating. Now, they might not always be eating, and some of you could enlighten me on that, but they either seem to be eating, the cows chewing the cud, or walking to eat. Kind of just like some girls I went to Bible college with. Uh, sorry, sorry. Pastor Tyler, it's really his fault, because he said, we're real relaxed now that my dad's not in charge. So... The humor just, if it's even considered that, I apologize. Didn't mean it that way at all. I'm going to have to repent. Get 40 days and I'll be overthrown. So he made this decree. Cattle can't eat. How do you keep cattle from eating? I guess with careful attention. I mean, I don't know, but I'm assuming it would take some measure of effort to do that. How do you keep sheep from eating? I'm assuming with some measure of attention, you say, well, did he really mean that? Well, it's here. It seems like he really meant it. For how long? I, I don't know. It would be let not man and beast, or let man verse number eight, and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. I mean, how violent are cattle? Did, did you have bad cattle? I mean, were your sheep attacking? I mean, I know they're, they're, they do, but I mean, that bad? And, and he's like, no, no, let, let them, notice it. Let them turn every one of them from his evil way. This is how serious the king was. If we're going to see uh, a restoration, we're going all in on this thing. And I can see somebody like me going to the king going, why are we doing all this? You're the, you're the king. I come humbly. But what's the point of all of this? Verse number nine. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away his fierce anger that we perish not? Who can tell? Who can tell if God will turn away and repent you say that God changes his mind? No, repent means to deal in this text, to deal differently than he had. And by the way, in God's sovereignty and foreknowledge, he knew exactly what they were going to do. But let me say this. He did not force them to turn. No, no, listen to me. To me. He, I want to be clear theologically. He did not force them to turn. He did not mandate that they return. He did not like come down and physically say, you will repent. But he spoke the truth of his word. 40 days and you'll be destroyed. And, and they, Jonah doesn't even preach repentance. You see that in the text or don't see that in the text. He doesn't say yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Now, let me tell you how not to be destroyed. Repent ye, repent ye, turn from your evil way. For why will you die, O house of Nineveh? No, he doesn't do any of that. The king just understood. Well, we got to do something. We've got to try something. We've got to, we've got to give some measure of effort here. Let's humble ourselves before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And let's see, maybe, just maybe, this will do something. Who can tell? Oh, that's a really big statement. Who can tell? Who can tell? 
what God will do with your mission dollars. Oh, preacher, do you really think that me giving $500 a month is going to make an impact in the lives of people? I do. I don't know that it will. Well, who can tell what God will do? You think having some little medical clinic in Tanzania or Honduras or Cambodia or Laos or Vietnam, you think that's going to make a difference? I mean, come on. Well, who can tell what God will do? You think, Pastor... Going to Argentina with all of their good cattle and beautiful weather and Patagonia and nice mountains and, and all of that. You, you think this couple can make an impact there? Uh, I'm just, who can tell what God will do? You think Mike and Shelby go into beautiful Garden City, Kansas, a town with the name of a garden and doesn't have one. Dry, flat, windy, nothing like beautiful liberal Kansas. Nothing at all. Nothing at all. Do you think God can take that little couple there and revitalize a church that for years has just been on the brink? You think that that's going to matter? You think that it'll have any impact? You really think that? Who can tell? Oh, you think... Sending a dude who grew up in Okinawa, whose wife's from Tennessee with a southern accent, to Ireland's going to make a difference? They're not even redheaded. <laughs> I don't know. Who can tell? You think my little meager faith promise giving is going to make a difference? Who can tell? You think if I witness to somebody at school tomorrow, you think that's going to make a difference in their lives? I mean, I've been rejected 10,000 times. Just simply saying, who can tell? Well, what's God going to do? I don't know what God's going to do. By the way, neither did they know what God was going to do. I do know who knew what God was going to do. And that's Jonah knew what God was going to do. Because Jonah was a man of the word. Well, what did Jonah know God was going to do? Chapter 4. God saw their work in chapter 3, verse number 10, and they turned from their evil way, and God repented or changed the way he was going to deal with them, repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was, here's, here's the transliteration, you ready? You guys that know like Hebrew, here's the transliteration. And he was really ticked off at God. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country or in Israel? Therefore I fled to Tarshish. Listen to this. For, and he's mad about it. For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than live. Why? Oh, because we serve a wonderful, merciful Savior who is mighty to save. No, no, no. I said he's mighty to save. 
Oh, 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 I don't know that you got it. He rose and he conquered the grave. He has victory over death, over hell, over the grave. And he is mighty to save. He can save you. He saved me. He can save anyone, anywhere, at any time. And by the way, he wants to do that. He desires to do that. Whether it's some little kid with a bad kidney and swollen legs in Africa or some little girl without vision in Honduras or some little rich kid in San Diego or a cattle rustler, if that's still a thing, in Kansas. It matters not. He is mighty to save. Who can tell? I'll tell you who can tell. People who know the word of God know that the word of God will never return void. And your gift does not return void. And your go- the gospel does not return void. And, and your sacrifice does not return void. And missionary, your fatigue does not return void. And Mike, the $5,000 that you're going to donate to Canyon Ridge will not return void. Well, all of that was right but one. Who can tell? 2017. I'll tell this story and I'm done. 2017, my daughter Judith and I did an epic tour of Southeast Asia. I tried to get your dad to go to Southeast Asia with me. He won't go. He won't go. There's not Diet Pepsi there. <laughs> and you can't take it on a plane. So I've given up. But you've got to go with me one of these days. All right, you got to enjoy Asian food. And if you don't enjoy Asian food, Fergus Tunnell survived and you're more manly than he is. That's for sure. <sighs> if you don't know, Fergus, one of the best friends I've ever had in my life. Well, before I took anybody there, Judith and I are there and we flew 26,000 miles in 15 days. The body or 16 days, the body shouldn't do that. We were in 15 airports in 16 days. We went to Bangkok, Thailand, and then we went up by Laos, and we stayed in Chiang Kong, Thailand, and and ministered. I preached in several Hmong villages that were up there. Literally was right right, right across the Mekong River from Laos. I heard the communist propaganda every morning from Laos. I heard the Buddhist propaganda from the Thai side. I watched Buddhist monks every morning walk right in front of my motel asking for food. Every single morning, the entire time we were there. It was a wonderful experience. It really was. Best food in my life I've ever had in my life was was in Thailand. Um, left Thailand and was going to a missionary that I didn't like. Guy had been to our church and I didn't like him at all. Matter of fact, when we took him on for support, Debbie goes, why are you taking him on for support? You don't like him. I said, I think he's going to do a good work in Cambodia, but I can't stand this guy. He's from Long Beach. And if you know anything about Southern California, if you're in San Diego, that's where God's people are. If you know where Long Beach is, that's where Snoop Dogg and Satan's people are. So I just didn't want to be a part. He had been a cop in Long Beach and he thought he knew everything. And, and I was like, oh my word, we're just going. because I, I, And we weren't even going to go on a Sunday service because I wanted to be in Okinawa on Sunday. So we arrived in Cambodia on a Tuesday. We were leaving on a Friday. Arrived in Cambodia, got off the plane. Missionary Dave Board picks us up in a tuk-tuk. We go to a motel, the motel that he takes us to doesn't have an elevator. Well, it has an elevator. It's literally about half the size of this communion table. He's like, go ahead and get in on that. And I looked at him. I'm like, no, I'm good. (sighs) He's like, no, we can all fit. I'm like, no, you go right ahead. 
He goes, well, Judith's going to go in there with us. My daughter, Judith, she's like 5'2 and 110 pounds. I said, well, Judith can die if she wants to. I'm going up the stairs. I went up the stairs, went into the room, and our window opened up to the city sewer. Didn't have air conditioning. Smelled pretty good. I walked back down the stairs and I said, Brother Board, I know you did your best trying to help us. And really, he had gotten us a good motel. And because it's Southeast Asia, the three motels we were staying at, we're going to stay at all closed down. So I come out of that one. I'm like, dude, I have got to stay somewhere that doesn't smell like a truck stop bathroom on a hot summer day in Florida. He's like, okay, we'll try this one over here. So we go over there. We get in the motel. He said, let's go to the mall. So we go to the mall. We sit down. We have coffee. And instantly, this guy that I didn't really enjoy became one of the best friends I've ever had in my entire life. I mean, if you know me, you know that my heart and Dave, Dave Board's heart, I mean, I'm close to him like I am your old pastor and your young pastor. Preacher pass. I'm confused right now. I just feel like I'm really confused. I'm, I'm about to like, have a seizure. Um, and so Dave, Dave and I are there and we're, we're having fun. We're talking and we're talking ministry and we're talking life and, and God's really knit our heart. The next day we go to a torture chamber called S21 uh, where they took all the teenagers in the church that don't listen. Um, <laughs> No, it is really a horrible place during the reign of the Khmer Rouge where people were literally tortured to death. And, and uh, we went back to the church, had service Wednesday night. On Thursday, you've heard of the killing fields. We had a huge rainstorm on, on the night before, and we go to the killing fields. And as we're at the killing fields, I just, I, this image is, is indelibly marked in my mind. We're walking, literally, bones are coming out of the ground from people. Like the rain had washed water off the bones and bones are, are off, the, off the bones that are covered. Bones are coming out of the ground. There's a tree there uh, that's called the killing tree where the Khmer Rouge would, would take infants of prisoners and smash their heads against it. And there was still blood on the tree. It was, it was a horrible experience. And Judith and I, we, I won't go into it all, but let me just say there's a, there's a big mausoleum, if you will, and there's probably... About what, Deb, 35, 40,000 skulls in there of people that were killed that they found at the killing fields. And, and you go to something like that. And I'm just telling you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you know probably every one of those people went to hell. And that this life was the best life they knew and you knew the condition of this life. Boy, it moved us. Halfway through, my daughter and I are both kind of loners when we get like that. And she kind of goes her way and I kind of go mine. And we just weep. We don't know how to process our emotions. It's about 110 degrees outside. It's about 100% humidity. You're seeing all of this stuff and you're just weeping. You're just weeping. I mean, literally, like uncontrollably. And so we, we leave there and we, we, Dave said, hey, I want to take you one more place before you leave. And he was doing, you know how missionaries do it. They take you to the places so that you have a burden for their field. And normally I'm ticked off at that, but it worked. So he takes me to a village called the Elephant Den Village. And as we walk into the village, I'll make a long, sad story real short. It's built on a trash dump. It's a trash dump. And he looked at me. He said, this is one of the oldest villages in the world that we know of. One of the, the oldest villages in Cambodia. It's the number one traffic, human traffic village in all of the world. When I walked on, the, on, on there, they had a, a ministry to children at that, at that village. And when I walked into the village, 
the kids ran in and started hiding. And then when they found out that I was with the church group, they kind of came out and felt safe. He said, did you see that happen? I said, yeah, I, I saw that happen. I don't know why. He said, because you could buy any one of these children today, their parents will just give them to you. I said, like, buy them for what, like, like a night? He goes, how much do you think you could buy them for? I'm like, I have no idea. I'm not, I'm not in the market. And I'm weeping. I mean, I'm literally just weeping. I'm like, I don't know. He said, you see that little girl right there? I said, yeah. He goes, how old do you think she is? I said, I I don't know. She looks like three or four. He goes, I think she's nine. And that's her mom over there. And her mom wants you to buy her for four or $500. It's negotiable. I said, for like a night, a week, what, what? He goes, oh, no, no. For the rest of her life, she can be yours. And so we go through, we try to minister to those people. We preach the hope of the gospel to those people. They do. I, I don't speak Kamai, so I was just kind of the... Uh, there along for the ride. We leave there, that poverty, and that's everywhere. And we go, because of Chinese money, to the most affluent mall I've ever been to in my life, and I live in Southern California. Beverly Hills doesn't have a thing on this mall. And we go in, and Dave said, hey, why don't we eat while we're here? And I said, okay. And Judith and I are pretty nauseous, moved with compassion, like we talked about last night. And I, I go up and I'm looking for something to eat. And I saw a chicken place. And I thought, oh, Cambodian chicken. <laughs> I figured it would be small. And I ordered this chicken and, and it was $6. And it was almost a full fried chicken. And Judith and I both ordered one because we thought it'd be like two little pieces and a little bit of rice. That's just because the way that we're thinking. And so we, we ate this chicken. Like two pieces. And the rest is in our bag, and we got a bunch of rice. I mean, they mounded us with rice. I, I guess they thought white people eat a lot. And then they saw me, and they thought, he really eats a lot. It was, it was packed, man. And I ate, and, and Dave and his wife are over there eating some fish sauce papaya salad, which I love papaya salad, but I don't like fish sauce, so I didn't eat with them. And I, de- I told them, I said, we just need to be alone for a little while, and I don't want to talk to you right now. I'm, I'm kind of irritated that you took me to all these places so that I would have a heart for your mission field. Why don't you just be happy with the money I give you? And he laughed and I laughed and we were kidding around about it. It was funny, but I really did need to be alone. I just had to, in some way, try to process what I had just been through. So we eat and he comes back over and literally Judith and I, we ate a few bites and we cried and, and we got done and... And I take the styrofoam containers in the bag, and the bag that we had probably weighed about four pounds. I'll never forget it. And I pick the bag up, and I go over to the trash bin, and I go to put it in the bin. And like, I'm putting it in the bin, and Dave goes, what do you think you're doing? And I was like, do you guys not throw stuff away in Cambodia? Maybe that's why your city's so dirty. Throw stuff away. He goes, no, Chris, please don't throw that away. We'll find some poor person to give that to on the ride home. I said, no, we won't. He said, let's go. So it was all good humor. Grab the bag. We go down. There's a Starbucks there. We got some coffee at Starbucks. I drank as much coffee as I could on that trip because it's a 17-hour time difference. And I was asleep during the day and awake during the night. And So we drank some coffee. And there was a huge rainstorm like what we had last night, only worse And really worse because the largest sewer pipe, those of you that know plumbing, in the entire city of Phnom Penh, a city of 1.5 million people, the largest pipe is six inches. So whenever it rains, it fills up in the city with about two to three feet of sewage throughout the whole city. You already promised you'll go. And so 
We're waiting for the storm to stop and it doesn't stop. We've hired a tuk-tuk driver to be with us all day, paid him $2 to drive us around the city all day long. And so we're just waiting for the storm to end. Storm doesn't end. And so they call him and he comes up. He's a pastor of a Cambodian Baptist church and it was a ministry to him. We paid him way more than two bucks to be a blessing to him, a huge, way more for him, uh, like a month's salary to drive us around. And we get in his tuk-tuk, which is like a little moped with four seats on it, if you don't know what it is. And we jump in the back of the tuk-tuk. Judith and I are, are closest to the, the driver. And Dave and his wife, Debbie, are facing us. And we're talking. And, man, God is just moving in my heart. It's raining cats and dogs. And we're, we're driving through. There's water coming in the bottom of the tuk-tuk. Sewage water coming in the bottom of the tuk-tuk. I mean, we're struggling big time. And we come up, I'll never forget it. Pastor, I'll never forget it. And I, I mean, like, it, it changed me. We're, we're sitting in the tuk-tuk. This student remembers of me. We're sitting in the tuk-tuk, raining like cats and dogs. And it's, and it's, it's at a stoplight. And we're stuck at the stoplight for like, what's going to be 15, 20 minutes. And while we're there, this little beggar girl comes up and she opens up the, the, the umbrella that we had that had a zipper on it, kind of like a golf cart, if you've ever seen that, similar to that. And she opens that up and she sticks her and her little brother and she sticks her head inside the window and goes, Jim Bripsua? which is a formal greeting in Kumai. Jimbripsua, Jimbripsua. Brother Dave has been fluent in, in Kumai since he was 15 years old, learned the language when he was in Iowa, started a bus ministry in a refugee camp there in Iowa. And Brother Dave goes, begins to talk to her. He begins to share the gospel with her. His wife, Debbie, they can't give him money because the mom's over on the street corner gambling with any money that the kids could get. So you don't give them any money. And so Debbie has a couple of little candies that she always keeps in her purse. And she gave her a couple of pieces of candy, one for her and one for her, for her brother. And she was very, very gracious and said, thank you. And was getting ready to leave. And Dave and I look at each other. I'm like, what about that food? And the girl stopped and looked at me and looked at Dave And Dave spoke to her again in Kumai and gave her the food. And she held the food. And she goes, for me? He goes, yeah, for you. For you and your brother, you guys eat it. Hard to describe. She began to weep in such a way I've never seen a person weep other than like death. She began to weep in a way that just just convulsively weeping. It's raining cats and dogs. Her and her brother are there. It's 90 degrees outside. It's 930 at night. It's dark outside. She said, for me, he said, yes, eat it. For me, share the gospel with her again. She takes the bag. She runs out. She literally <laughs> runs out. And we see her grab some little Cambodian friends that she had. They all, because we can watch, because I mean, we're still stuck at the light and we're watching and they run under this tree and they begin to eat. I said, Dave, Debbie, explain to us what just happened. Judah's crying. I'm crying. I, I mean, it, it, it was, it was, it was tears of joy, sadness. We 
didn't know. We just felt like crying was the thing to do. After all that we'd been through that day, it was an emotional outlet. And Dave said, oh, Chris, you need to understand a couple of things. He said, number one, that girl has never heard about Jesus her entire life. So I shared the gospel as quickly as I could. I said, why don't you give her a tract? Like something, he goes, Chris, she can't read. She's never been to school a day in her life. Her mom's poor, she's poor, she'll always be poor. This is what she'll do for the rest of her life. He goes, that's the biggest meal. What you just gave her is the biggest meal that she'll ever eat probably in her entire life. And I looked at Dave and I looked at Debbie and this is what I thought. Is anything that you're doing making a difference? Is any of this making a difference? And then you know what I thought of? Who can tell? Who can tell what God will do? You say, why don't you jump out and go witness to her? Well, I don't speak the language. We couldn't really do it. It There's so many reasons it wouldn't be allowed. But who can tell? I do know that a missionary is now in that part of the city and preaching the gospel and ministering to people and reaching people. And all I have to say is who can tell? Hey, faith promise commitment is coming. Who can tell what God will do with your faith promise? Who can tell what God will do when you give what he tells you to give by faith? Who can tell the impact that you'll make by, by going on a mission trip or, or by surrendering to the call of God in your own life? Oh, I don't think God could use me. Well, well, I don't know, but who can tell what God will do. Jonah understood something. God could use him. I'm the son of an alcoholic from Border, Texas. Generational alcoholism in my life. I mean, generational alcoholism. My generation is the first Chadwick generation in five generations to not be entirely alcoholic. Who can tell? My uncle invited my dad to a service at the Eastside Baptist Church in Borger, Texas, to hear an old famous Texas wrestler named Tommy uh, Stone get up and preach. And this guy preached a Southern Baptist evangelist. And my dad walked the aisle and he got saved. And my whole life was transformed because some dude invited a, my dad to go to a service who heard the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was saved. And now my dad's a preacher and I'm a preacher. My sister's in full-time ministry. My brother runs the children's ministry of his church. My uncles are saved. My cousins are saved. Who can tell what God will do? Well, I don't think a lot will happen. Who can tell? I'll tell you this much. Ephesians chapter 3 verse number 20. That he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine. Well, pastor, what do you think I should do? I think you should do exactly what Jesus tells you to do. Well, I'd like to see the returns. You will one day in glory. You will one day when you stand before the Lord. I'm more worried about my eternal 401k than I am this 401k. I give more to missions than I give to anything else. It's way more than I, we give way more, almost double what we pay in mortgage. I mean, we love to give to missions. You say, I don't know that anything of value you is going to happen with all that. I don't know either, but who can tell what God will do? I don't know if 10,000 Irish, Irish people will get saved, but if the gospel's being preached, God's doing a work. And the people in Argentina and the folks in medical missions and the guys in San Diego or the folks in Garden, Kansas or the people in liberal Kansas, who, who can tell what God will do? All I know is that my God is good and he is sovereign and he is faithful and he's kind and he's mighty to 
to save. And he's standing at the door and he's ready to receive anyone who will call upon him. And he needs some folks or he desires some folks who will be obedient and step out by faith on Sunday and make a commitment to give and live every day of your life like you're a missionary, whether it's in liberal or Garden City or Ireland or San Diego or Argentina or all over the world or all over the country. God wants to do something amazing and he'll do more than we can ever ask or imagine. Who can tell? Father, bless our